Welcome, dear listeners, to Saturn Speaks, a podcast about bringing spirituality down to Earth. I am your host, Jessica Moore, and today we will be continuing our exploration of why politics matters to our spirituality, this time by focusing on the intersection between racism, fascism, and the New Age. This is a difficult subject. It is also very important, I feel, because of how Uh, certain spiritual beliefs and certain aspects of spiritual and wellness circles can actually lead people down a rabbit hole, so to speak, of um, like a ramp sliding down towards the far right and in the direction of fascism, which seems like it doesn't make any sense, but I'll be explaining why that is. This is a topic that I follow quite a bit when other people talk about it in podcasts and and such, and uh, it's something that has been um, kind of alarming me lately. So before I dive into that, on this podcast today, may what needs to be said be said, and what needs to be heard be heard, and may this sharing and receiving benefit all of life. So now let's jump in. I'd like to start with what I feel are the two cornerstones of fascism, and uh, based on the research that I've done into just, you know, armchair research into the psychology behind people's political views. It was really interesting to me It's it, to, to figure out what really drives people, like what motivates people to hold certain beliefs and to act in certain ways politically. And I discovered that what determines people's political stance really comes down to two things. Two, um, you could call them two different spectrums and where those two uh, different spectrums intersect. So there's how much people are willing to criticize the society that we live in. That seems to be a major factor. And of course, that kind of ties into the whole, you know, progressive, meaning you want change and conservative, meaning you want tradition and things to kind of stay the same. So that uh, is a big um, factor, of course. But there's also how much people believe that certain groups of people have a right to dominate others. And this is where fascism comes in, because fascism is really about superiority and domination. You know, many of us tend to think that at this point in our history that everyone believes in equality. But unfortunately, that's simply not the case. I feel that many commonly held political views that I see advocate for certain groups to benefit more than others. A very obvious example of that is being against immigration, which is based on the idea that we need to prioritize our people more than prioritizing other people. And those other people, of course, aren't included in the idea of our people. So really what this um, tendency towards preferring or uh, certain groups to be elevated in in the benefits they receive, in status in society over others, really ultimately comes down to the mindset of us versus them and that othering that happens when certain people are not included in the category of us. And, of course, inequality is kind of built into our system as well by how um, our capitalist economy Um, really is based on the idea that those who have more money are entitled to have more money and live a more luxurious lifestyle. 
than other people. So right there, there's a fundamental inequality in society that is um, actually in is enshrined in our economy, but also that many people in their political beliefs and their social beliefs that it, they justify and they think is a, a right and good thing to have that level of inequality. Uh, really, I feel like a person's tendency towards egalitarianism and wanting equality and the, and an intolerance towards inequality in a person depends on their level of empathy. Because when we have really high empathy, we include a lot more people and other beings as well, like non-human beings, in our circle of those who we like and care about, of the beings that we consider in that category of us. And none of us feel the same level of empathy to those who we feel are outside of the circles we belong to. And that's just how our brains work. That's it's just how we're wired. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it you can see how the bigger the group that we identify with, like if we see all of humanity as one big family, then we're going to have a much easier time empathizing with anyone on the planet, even if they're of a different culture or they speak a different language or they look different than us. And the more we uh, empathize with people, the less we tend to dehumanize people and see them as not just other, but as less than us, as somehow not just different, but inferior or even you know, scary or even dangerous. And this categorization of people into categories of us or them is called tribalism. And to a certain extent, it is natural for us humans to do that, to know who is in our group and who isn't. And this is because a little bit of I learned about neuroscience is how our brains work, that fundamentally our brains categorize things based on our past experiences. So if we aren't familiar with people who look or act a certain way, then it's easy to be suspicious of those people that we're not familiar with. It's just, you know, because we don't have that past experience with them to, to base our present day emotions and reactions on. But this uh, is not only based on familiarity and that kind of just inbred, inborn neuroscience, but it's also based on the beliefs we hold. So if we expose ourselves to diverse cultures and believe fundamentally that we are more alike as humans than we are separate with our different cultures, then we won't have as much of a knee-jerk reaction of othering people who don't look or act like us. We'll be more open to them. We'll be more welcoming to them. We won't be so quick to see them with suspicion. But if we live in a homogenous place and only hear about, you know, Muslim terrorists, and that's the only way that we ever hear about Muslims is in the context of terrorism... You know, or if we only hear about dangerous immigrants and, and we don't really know any immigrants and so we have this idea that they're all dangerous, then we won't tend to feel very much empathy for them. So I kind of like to touch back on the other factor as well, which is that willingness to criticize society. And that's always been a key defining feature of conservative or progressive values because it's literally in the definition of those words. Um, but... Uh, but really, just to put a point on that, 
whether we want to maintain the status quo or whether we want social change really comes down to how much we like and agree with the society we live in, which very much is based on how much we are kind of benefiting from the society we live in, how much, you know, we feel that society has has really been difficult for us, but also, so that's the self-interest piece, but the empathy piece, if we see other people suffering, even if we aren't suffering, we might be more uh, willing to criticize society. And so, so that that wanting to maintain the status quo in a society where people are suffering you can only do that if you don't really feel that much empathy for those people who aren't suffering. Maybe, you know, you might feel empathy for them when they're right in front of you, but it's easy to not feel that empathy when you're hearing talking points on television, you know, and those people aren't right there. And this political motivator of the desire to create change or the desire to uh, adhere to the standards and rules of society because you agree with the society really determines how much we value, how much a person values obedience to authority and how, uh, and, and then that determines how authoritarian our beliefs are. So when we are strongly attached to the group that we belong to and we don't want that, that group, that society to change, then we will value conformity and obedience as values that we think should be upheld in society much more highly. But when we are less attached to the group and we are more critical of it, and the, then the more willing we are to allow people the freedom to diverge from social norms, you know, to be counterculture. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because these two measures of political belief, the idea of superiority or inequality, and that idea of obedience to authority or that predilection towards obedience to authority are the keys to understanding fascism. And they also help to explain why even people who have very deep spiritual beliefs and even people who believe that we are all one can still have antagonistic and even fascistic tendencies because of these other aspects of their belief system and these other ways of looking at the world. And so, as I mentioned in the last episode, my political views are extremely egalitarian and anti-authoritarian. I've, I've just kind of always been that way. I've always uh, felt a certain level of discomfort in this society. So even though I grew up really privileged, I also um, was always very aware of how, of the ways that our society just does not work for people. And, just uh, didn't work for me on like a really deep, subtle level. And so I could easily describe myself as an anti-fascist because of this, because fascism is the opposite of egalitarianism and anti-authoritarianism. It's really based on a idea of superiority of a certain group and also an obedience to authority. Um, just to describe that, the Merriam-Webster de definition of fascism is a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual. So that's the, um, just to add my note in here, that's the obedience to authority aspect and the obedience to the society. Back to the definition. And that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, 
and forcible suppression of opposition. So very much an obedience to authority really defines fascism. And I would say that fascists really want a society that is ruled over by a strongman who wields near absolute control and that and and the reason why they want dissent to be crushed and why they want people to be forced to be to obey is because they see the dissenters as degenerate and pretty much literally evil if you hear them talk they use the term degenerates all the time <laughs> Um, and so that's kind of a little, um, you know, a little thing to remember that anytime you hear someone use the word degenerate to describe a person or a group, then you know they're leaning pretty hard into fascist territory right there. And to the other aspect of fascism that's important to bring up is how it is defined by extreme social stratification, which means dividing people into a hierarchy with certain ethnic and religious groups or even certain political groups, forced to be subordinated and dominated by others. And so that idea of hierarchy, that's that anti-egalitarian thing. You know, they want society to be unequal. And the moral, justi sorry. <laughs> moral justification for this is the belief in the superiority of certain groups over others. And the idea that the world is a battleground between the forces of good and evil. Because when people see things in really black and white terms like that, they tend to see people as belonging to either the category of us or them, where us is good and them is bad. And that's like, you could say, the extreme version of the us versus them mindset, where the them is bad or evil and or degenerate or just inferior. And so if the other is seen in that way, then it just makes it very easy to dehumanize them and oppress them and even just straight up kill them off. And so, you know, in contrast, if everyone were equal, then no one would be given a higher status or allowed to dominate anyone else, or at least a higher, no one would be allowed to have that sense of control over other people. And if everyone was equally good, inherently, like equally inherently valuable and worthwhile, you know, as a human being equally divine, then it would be morally wrong to subjugate or oppress other people, regardless of their religion or politics or sexual orientation. So I hope that all makes sense and, and really, you know, gives a, a more of a clear understanding of what fascism is. Because that word is thrown around a lot these days, and a lot of times the people who are saying it are the ones actually expressing some of these fascistic tendencies because there's just such a lack of understanding of what it means. So it's just kind of become a buzzword. But it does mean something specific, and it's really important to understand it so that we can make sure that we're not kind of moving in that direction with our political views. And I'd also like to explore how, uh, how modern-day wellness and fitness culture has its roots in white supremacy, because that's something many people aren't aware of, and I certainly wasn't aware of it until I heard a podcast episode about it, and it was like, what? So I'd like to kind of share a little bit about what I've learned with that um, and kind of summarize that. So modern fitness culture 
started around the turn of the century. Like before that, people didn't really think in terms of exercising for fun as a hobby at all. You know, people worked so hard, generally blue collar jobs and manual labor. That idea was just made no sense. And so that idea first came about when uh, there was that cultural shift from blue collar factory work to white collar office jobs, which were a lot more sedentary. And um, and so that cultural shift kind of gave rise to that first gym culture. So seeing the sedentary lifestyle that people were starting to live, the first advocates of, the, of this physical fitness idea started, you know, telling people that that for their health and well-being, they should work out in their free time outside of work. And that became an underpinning for physical ed classes and schools around the country, which didn't exist before that. And it also gave rise to a lot of new sports like aerobics, bodybuilding, um, just a lot of sports uh, really came out of that. But it's important to note that this wasn't originally a movement for all people to participate in. It was a movement of white people for white people. And the reason for that is because at the time, the ones who were getting all of those white collar jobs were white people. And the ones who were working the blue collar jobs still were brown people generally. And so brown or black people. So the white people were noticing that the other people in their white communities were kind of getting soft and overweight and and just looking weak. And there was this this idea of weakness, you know, that we need to be strong um, and look at, you know, all these other people of other races are very strong because of the work that they're doing and we're getting weak. And that was seen as a problem. And of course, you know, why would that be a problem? Well, <laughs> that's, you know, that's where the racism comes in. You know, it's our race needs to be at you know, seen as superior. And how can we be superior if we're the fat, lazy, weak ones, you know? Back then, this movement was specifically rooted in a fear of racial suicide. And that was actually a term that was used. They worried about the white race, like, you know, getting soft and weak. And so it wasn't just about wanting people to be healthy the way it is today. And and the reason why that was actually seen as a racial suicide issue is because if white people got soft and fat, then they would have less white babies, they would be less numerous and would decline in power. And part of this on the, the more female side of this, because women weren't really involved in gym culture back then, but the same people who advocated for gym culture also advocated for um, changes to women's attire, like getting rid of corsets, because they saw those things as inhibiting women's ability to have babies. And, of course, who wore the corsets? It was generally kind of people in that certain class of society and not so much like the working class um, people who were starting to become much more uh, racially segregated in terms of like, you know, the, the working class people of the time were not white. And so I do want to kind of emphasize that this isn't just me ascribing motivations to these people that all of this was explicitly written down by the people who were the founders of that fitness movement. Um, like one of them who was an outspoken opponent of corsets, which is awesome, uh, also gave the justification for that that he wrote at the time, which was 
that, you know, that squeezing their organs would damage their ability to have babies. So he was explicitly worried about that. He didn't really necessarily care about, you know, women's discomfort or women's health in general. He cared about women's ability to have babies. (laughs) So even though the fitness world today has expanded beyond that, those roots still linger on and are important to be aware of. Because if you look at wellness spaces today, they tend to be very white and they are largely blind to the inequality of people, you know, to access those spaces. Like that, that a lot of people aren't able to access those spaces because of a lack of time. You know, if they're single mothers or, you know, have to work two jobs or a lack of money. And so that it's kind of an expression of privilege to even be able to do that. And also, there's this attitude in wellness communities today that is extremely individualistic, that really is an expression of our culture and capitalism, where it's seen as a personal failing if you aren't fit and healthy. And if you're overweight or you don't eat well and you're not healthy, then that's purely a matter of personal choice. And so there's this blindness to the societal uh, influences on people's health and choices and to the reality of food deserts and how communities of color don't have the same access to health foods, how, you know, different people who don't have, you know, who can't afford yoga classes and some people can't afford all to shop at Whole Foods. Um, so that's all kind of ignored. And I feel like I'm going to come back to that actually in a bit that that um, focus on individualism, because that ties into a whole bunch of other things. But I'd also like to just interject here, um, specifically, since we're talking about fascism today, the Nazis also promoted physical fitness, like really heavily. And so this historical connection between white supremacy and fitness culture uh, really was seen in Nazi Germany and uh, as an expression of that connection. And so, I mean, all of this probably seems totally nuts to most of us today, but back then... The Nazis really wanted the white race to be strong, you know, physically strong, mentally strong and everything, because they saw those things as measures of racial power and racial superiority. So if you, you know, look at images from the times, there are images from the 40s of hundreds of children lined up in Germany doing exercises in rows. You know, they really push that in their schools and the with the youth. Because they saw it as, you know, that not only were you doing this for your own benefit, you know, being healthy for your own benefit, but by taking, making the effort to get fit and healthy, that you were being a good member of society and that you were supporting the strength of the country. So it it was actually a very nationalistic thing. And this also parallels Hindu nationalism in India which has a very strong historical connection with the practice of yoga, as well as other meditation and spiritual practices. But the common thread here is that idea of individual perfection as an expression of a entire class of people, you know, as, as, as an expression of the country, as an expression of your religion, and that you are furthering these larger group interests by exhibiting morally superior qualities and physically superior qualities. And also, I I should also mention that today's neo-Nazis, 
very much emphasize this idea of physical fitness as well. It is interesting that there has been this historical connection between nationalism and fitness. And nationalism very much ties into fascism because of the whole obedience to the state aspect of it, which goes very much hand in hand with a national pride and also wanting your nation to dominate, which, you know, is really at the core of nationalism. Like you want your nation to be on top. So there's that superiority as well. A little side note, <laughs> but I do want to mention that there was a very strong pushback against uh, fascism in the past after World War II. And so, you know, the, like where people saw the, these images of German youth being lined up by the Nazis and doing all these exercises in perfect unison as an expression of excuse me, totalitarianism and as an unhealthy level of governmental authority over people's bodies. And so it's really interesting that on the one hand, you have people in modern day spiritual and wellness spaces labeling mask mandates and vaccination as emerging fascism. But because that is a reaction against the idea of the government controlling what people do with their bodies, right? And, and seeing that as a violation of personal freedom. But I do want to say that there is that whole uh, aspect of this that's kind of left out, which is that there are valid reasons to limit people's freedom, such as stopping people from doing things that might hurt other people. Um, and so if you deny that it's that it's even possible to, for example, make other people around you sick, like if you deny that it's impossible for you to cause harm to the people around you, then of course you're going to see like these kind of restrictions on our freedom, like having to wear a mask in a store as a violation of our sovereignty. And we'll see that for as happening for no good reason. But that ties into a very childish idea of personal sovereignty as being completely without limits instead of the, and which ties in with individualism and this idea that I should be able to do whatever I want because, you know, everyone's separate. But that, it, you know, if you look at the mature understanding of sovereignty as having limits because our free will to act is limited by other people's sovereignty, right? Like, I have sovereignty, but you also have sovereignty. And so, like, my freedom to swing my fist towards your face stops where it reaches your nose kind of thing. And then now I'm violating your sovereignty with my own expression of sovereignty. So it's really this, you know, whole dance of boundaries here, this whole sovereignty thing. And no one's ever completely 100% free um, because we all need to be responsible for each other as well because we're all connected. So I'll be coming back to that in a minute because that ties into a lot of, you know, spiritual ideas there. But kind of back to the kind of thing about Hindu nationalism and physical fitness, these concepts of perfection and purity are very much expressions of, um, or, or things that have been present in fascism, and they're also very present in modern day spirituality. So there's an interesting overlap there. Um, because even if they're not consciously expressed all the time, these ideas of achieving a, 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 some kind of standard of perfection and being pure in what you eat and how you, you know, uh, act in the world is very much in a lot of spiritual practices and teachings. 
So, you know, even though there isn't an overly nationalistic purpose to this anymore, and the motivation is now just like a desire for personal growth and well-being, there's still this underlying drive towards perfection as a kind of moral virtue. You know, nowadays it's often couched in terms of like high vibe or moving towards ascension, you know, or enlightenment. And that's important because it really uh, is the same motivation for the Nazi fitness programs in World War II Germany. There was this idea of racial purity, so, and perfecting the white race. So it's really interesting. I do want to mention, so I did get a lot of this information from the Conspirituality podcast, and they've done at least one episode on this topic. And I was really struck by what one of the hosts there, Matthew Remsky, where he, he said that he did a research project early on in his yoga days. And the project was on why so many practitioners of yoga had sustained injuries from their yoga practice. Because he was like, this is something that is supposed to be about health and improving your health. But yet I'm seeing all the you know people, he was meeting people who were saying that it actually hurt them. And he was wondering why that happened or how that could happen. So he said that the number one theme that came up in talking to people was that they had pushed themselves too hard because they were feeling that need for perfection. And so that underlying need for perfection can kind of turn things um, that would otherwise be healthy into kind of dogmatic, you know, strictures that you must adhere to that can actually be harmful because they can be taken to excess. One of the expressions of this idea of perfection in wellness spaces today and that idea of purity is an obsession with only eating certain foods and avoiding other foods that goes really far beyond the idea of simply eating healthy. And I just want to kind of clarify that the idea of purity means that falling short of a certain set of standards externally imposed standards would make you or your body unclean in some way or impure in some way. And so this, I, so one's, you know, level of purity or perfection is measured by how well a person upholds certain standards and practices of health. And that in turn becomes a measure of one's status in the wellness and spiritual subculture. You know, like if, if you were at a party, um, where people are drinking cacao and and it's like, you know, this very, very high vibe gathering and you wanted to have a beer, you'd be seen as like, a, you know, low vibe, like normie or something or muggle. And it, it's really, there's this like looking down on anyone who doesn't really adhit, adhere to these very strict standards. And I think it's interesting to think about how much that is motivated from the same place of anxiety around power and status and the need to elevate oneself in the social hierarchy, because that was the same anxiety that the original racist founders of fitness culture had. So that underlying vibe of it is still there. So I, I, I would like to point out just a couple of more examples of this, you know, the focus on detoxification, which is huge. And yeah, I mean, there's something definitely important about detoxifying uh, when, you know, there's symptoms of toxicity, but 
it's I've known people personally who've actually harmed themselves by going to these crazy extremes of detoxification and doing it too much and doing certain protocols where uh, that are questionably (laughs) good for you and potentially just going to do more harm than good. There's also a lot of fear around the danger of vaccines in modern day culture. And that's also something that was present in Nazi Germany in the 40s of the whole uh, seeing the certain aspects of medicine as being really dangerous and problematic um, because they were very obsessed with their genes, you know, with the with these racial they, they saw the whole they had a whole worldview that was through this racial lens. And so, of course, genetics becomes a big thing. And there's interesting parallels with that today. Um, an example is a blog post that I found on medical sovereignty. And this is what it says. So there's the heading Divine DNA. Our genetic template and blueprint is designed and evolved in accordance with a higher evolutionary plan by the Godhead. We do not give consent for alteration or manipulation of our genetic integrity. And it goes on to say, I recognize the divine intelligent design of my genetics and vow to live my life in a way that ensures genetic integrity in accordance with the higher evolutionary plan of the divine. So you can kind of start to see how there's a similar um, similarity there with this obsession on genes and genetic integrity And also, you know, a higher evolutionary plan of the divine kind of sounds like it's about wanting to evolve to a higher state, which is superior. So there's this idea of genetic superiority kind of underlying this. You know, that's really an interesting parallel. So in addition to that, there's also that idea of hyper-individualism. Sorry for bouncing around a little bit. I really tried to make this uh, flow in a, in a very cohesive way. And it was really hard. I had reworked it a lot. The idea of hyper-individualism, I feel like is also very important to bring up because it has its roots in fascism as well. And in the new age today, you can kind of see that in a certain conceptualization of the oneness where you are the center of the universe because everything is you. And thus, you have no responsibility to anyone else because everyone is just a reflection of you and you are just a reflection of them. So it's really positioning people at at the center of the universe, which makes sense that we all feel like we're the center of our own universe. I mean, that, of course, we're perceiving out from our own eyes through our own lens. That's fine. But when when your idea of oneness goes to such an extreme where you literally think that everything is just you and that no other people even like really exist in that way. (laughs) Like your perception of them is just you perceiving yourself. That, you know, I, I feel like that it's very interesting because you'd think that if you believed that everything is one, then you would have very communal beliefs and you have a sense of like, you know, um, this togetherness and community and, you know, interconnectedness. And the Native Americans really saw that, you know, that they saw that we are all like this big community of life. But the New Age has kind of taken this idea of oneness and married it with the American 
idea of individualism and extreme individualism to kind of become this thing where oneness means that everything is just you. And so that leads to an individualistic view of health, kind of back to the wellness thing where seeing one's state of health as entirely a matter of personal choice, where disease only happens to people with poor immune systems. And of course, they only got those poor immune systems because of their low vibe choices and actions, you know, their flawed decisions, <laughs> you know, and, and on a personal level. So it's like a moral failing instead of recognizing that maybe people couldn't afford better food or, you know, maybe they don't have time to cook or, you know, they don't have time to go to yoga or do yoga and things like that. Um, or maybe it's just the culture that they're in and they don't even know about this stuff. But and, and maybe there's literally no health food even available to them within 200 miles, which is really common in rural America. Um, but, you know, it's it's instead it's seen as like, no, y you know, your state of health is is completely in your control and it's all up to you and society plays no role. And so therefore, the only one who can help you be healthy is yourself. And that's really a hyper-individualistic and even capitalistic view, you know, just like every other aspect of capitalism that wants to, you know, ignore the impact of society or the importance of society or any role of, of society in people's lives. It's a really libertarian view, really. Because if it's your own fault, if you get sick, and if it's your own responsibility to stay healthy, then there's no need for publicly provided health care. So it's fine that we don't have any health care in this country. <laughs> and I feel that this hyper-individualism around health kind of leans into fascism because there's a feeling of superiority that it leads to, where people with tight and slim bodies are seen as like morally superior or more spiritually enlightened. You know, they're further along and, and you're, you know, these these spiritual spaces are filled with people who are really skinny. And if someone's really overweight, it's like, well, you know, you need to, you know, stop eating so much cheese or something, you know, <laughs> um, which might partially be true. But, you know, it's cheese is awesome. So <laughs> it's not like, you know, uh, you're low vibe if you eat cheese. I feel that this. The use of the term sovereignty really is an expression of this individualism in wellness spaces. And that and people tend to use that term sovereignty to mean that they shouldn't have to adhere to the wishes of the collective or follow the dictates of society. So on the surface, it seems very anti-authoritarian, right? Like, I want to do what I want and not have anyone tell me what to do. So in the new age, that sovereignty really comes forth in the idea that the individual is in full control over their own health and well-being. But as I was saying before, that's kind of a child's version of sovereignty, kind of like an immature teenager that says, I can do what I want and I shouldn't have to listen to you <laughs> because archetypally. So this is how I would counterpose what sovereignty I feel really means on an archetypal level. I feel that it means that you are standing in your power and your power extends to your body, your possessions, and your personal space. So it really relates to boundaries and your freedom of choice to do what, what, what you want with your body, you know, and your free will. 
But nowhere in that does the idea of sovereignty say that I get to do whatever I want, regardless of its impact on you. Because if I don't care about how I'm impacting you or how I might be crossing your boundaries, then what that means is that I don't care about your sovereignty. So really, a lot of times when sovereignty is presented in in New Age circles, I see it the way that it's presented. It seems more like it's saying that what matters isn't sovereignty in general. What matters is that person's sovereignty. What matters is their choice and their ability to do what they want. It's not this sort of universally applied for everyone. (laughs) If everyone is sovereign, that means there are limits on our sovereignty. Because if everyone is sovereign over their own bodies and their own space, then um, we don't have the right to negatively impact other people's bodies and other people's space without being held accountable. And so the idea of sovereignty goes hand in hand with that idea that we all need to be responsible for each other. On an archetypal level, it's part, that responsibility is part of sovereignty. And yet it's used in the New Age culture in a very individualistic way. And just to give one example of this, there was, there's a very popular vegan restaurant in Sedona where they decided to post a sign in front of their door during the pandemic with the first line of their little spiel saying, we are all responsible for our own health. And they were using that as a excuse for, you know, not having their staff wear masks and being like, well, if you don't like it, you can just leave. And, and you know, it's their business. They can do what they want. But that line right there is directly contradicts this idea of we are a, are a place of love and care for all beings, which is very much you know, permeates that whole space. It's like, well, if we're all responsible for our own health, then I bear no responsibility for your health is what that means. And another really good example is the new age wellness influencer, Kelly Brogan, who early on in the pandemic called wearing masks a form of submission signaling, meaning that and and really explicitly saying that you are not sovereign if you choose to wear a mask and act responsibly with regard to the health of other people. Like, you are not sovereign. You're giving up your sovereignty. So she's explicitly defining sovereignty as that ability to do what you want with a disregard for your impact on others. And um, even going to the extreme of saying that you're giving up your sovereignty by freely choosing to wear a mask. (laughs) It's really interesting. Um, And I feel that this childish idea of sovereignty really leads people to act like narcissists in the world where the only person that matters to them is themselves. Um, Because if everything is connected, then my health and well-being is going to be impacted by the world around me. So this individualism that permeates wellness spaces just really contradicts this um, idea of interconnectedness. So... Another example of this hyper-individualistic mindset around sovereignty is the sovereign citizen movement. And I feel like anyone who is interested in this movement um, or intrigued by it or wants to learn more about it really needs to understand its origins, that it originated in an overtly racist militia movement in the 1970s. It was an idea that was initially put forward by people who believed that might makes right and that we should be able to do what we want without any regard for anyone else. 
They wanted to basically, I think, secede from the country, you know. This idea, uh, the sovereign citizen movement, really appeals to people because, you know, uh, it's, it has that idea of breaking away from the dictates of the government, which, you know, makes sense considering how authoritarian our society really is. But um, there's the, these explicitly racist undertones to it that I highly recommend researching and looking into because there's a lot more to that specific movement than just a desire to be free from governmental control. You know, because if if all you want is to, you know, um, make our society more democratic and m more or, or less authoritarian, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that and a lot of people that are trying to do that um, in other ways. <laughs> I'd like to shift gears a bit now and expose some of the closet racism in modern day spirituality. And I feel like this ties into the whole um, discussion around fascism because of how fascism is explicitly racist. You know, there's it's easy to kind of start sliding in that direction um, without even realize that you're being racist, um, because that's just an unfortunate reality that a lot of people today are racist without realizing it. And they don't intend to be, but unfortunately, simply believing that you're not racist doesn't automatically make that so. <laughs> so I'd like to point out some of the ways that this unconscious racism is perpetuated and so that we can hopefully become more aware of it and become explicitly anti-racist. You know, um, if we want to be spiritual people and we, we don't want to and we don't want to support white supremacy and we don't think that certain races are superior to others, then, you know, this is kind of important to really look at and be aware of, which is why I'm talking about it today. <laughs> One of the big reasons why it's so unconscious for people today is because the racism in modern times that we're seeing now is not the same as the racism of the past. So people now see the racism of the past and they think that that's what racism is. You know, it was much more open and explicit back then, and it was much more equivalent to just bigotry and prejudice, like someone just saying something derogatory to someone's face, you know. Um, but that's not really how racism is expressed today, for the most part, because of, you know, the shifting landscape of what's considered acceptable in society today. And, you know, even people who are explicitly racist and who would call people the n-word and all these slurs if they could don't because they understand that it's not it's not seen it's not it's socially accepted today and it's an optics thing you know they don't want to be considered they don't want to be seen as these overt racists even though they still really feel that way like people like you know the david duke and the ku klux klan they're much more um hidden about it today and in a lot of cases, people just don't even have a desire to denigrate other people like that, but it they can still act racist in more subtle ways. And I'll explain how that is. Um, and so the racism of today is exists not so much overtly, but it's more institutional. It's back then it was institutional, too, but we... You know, that that's where racism still exists in our society today, in the structures of our society and how these structures are set up, because they were designed from the beginning to support one race over all other races. And that really hasn't changed very much, despite all the progress, you know, we've made or that we feel that we've made. Most of that progress has been more in the social attitudes of people and that kind of 
what's seen as socially acceptable. But when it comes to the actual structures of our society, very little has been done, honestly. It's really, we haven't gotten as far as most people think. And so the most common way that racism is expressed today is just in that the denial, the simple denial that that systemic racism exists. And hand in hand with that is the willful blindness of people to that reality because they want to maintain this fantasy that everyone is truly equal in the society and that we've we've arrived already. We've already gotten rid of racism. It's already, you know, it's, it's a problem we've already solved. And also they want to maintain that fantasy of equality because that's the basis for an individualistic worldview. Because as soon as you start admitting that not everyone starts out equal, then you start then you can't say that everyone has an equal chance to advance in our society, you know, which is that whole, you know, um, land of opportunity that everyone has an equal opportunity if it, it's directly contradicted when you have an understanding of systemic racism. This hyper individualism and that pick yourself up by your bootstraps that kind of uh, needs uh, to hold this fantasy of equality and that everyone has an equal ability to advance in our society is the moral justification for conservative economics in general. Um, because if you are in a disadvantaged position in society, you know, the conservative view is that it's no fault of the system because the system is equal and fine, but it's entirely the fault of your own choices and moral failings. And therefore, lifting yourself up is entirely your own personal responsibility. So that's that individualism that's embedded in that. And you simply can't continue to believe that and accept that systemic racism and inequality is a thing that actually exists in society. Because acknowledging these other societal influences on people means acknowledging the power of the collective and the power of society to shape our lives. And so kind of back to New Age spirituality, when you want to believe that you're completely 100% sovereign over your life and that you are an all-powerful crea creator of your own reality, and when you want to believe that the only thing that shapes your life is your, is your choices, free will, and your beliefs that you choose to hold, then you simply can't accept that systemic racism exists because it's something bigger than you. It, it's, a, it's a force, a social force that has an impact on you regardless of, of what you choose to, you know, do or say or think or believe. So I feel like that's where a lot of that willful blindness comes from in spiritual circles. It, you know, you have to accept a certain, you, a certain feeling of helplessness with that, you know, that there's this really big thing, really big injustices that exist and that we don't have a lot of control over and it really sucks you know um it's much uh it makes you feel much better to believe that you're all powerful also a lot of spiritual people who are white would prefer that no one ever talked about race and that no one would ever you know bring up racial injustice because it makes them uncomfortable because then they have to face the possibility that they might be contributing to the problem and when your entire identity is framed on the idea that you are a being of love and light, you know, that you only do good in the world, that you spread love wherever you go, then entertaining the possibility that you might be part of the problem of racism, that you might be 
contributing to injustice and oppression for other people that there's a cognitive dissonance there that happens. And I think that's why during the Black Lives Matter protests, a lot of spiritual white folks preferred the term all lives matter because of that idea that if everyone was just colorblind, then racism wouldn't exist. And, you know, that might be true if everyone actually was colorblind in the world, but that's not the reality of the world. And so and and it's not the reality of the world that we all live in an equal playing field. And so, you know, it's the, the problems of racism affect people who aren't white, regardless of whether they want to they see race or not. It still affects them. And so that's just not an idea that's rooted in reality. The idea of colorblindness kind of just to, you know, it, it, uh, to explain it, if, if everyone was just colorblind, then racism wouldn't exist. Then therefore, the real problem is actually these protests that are all about race. And instead of fighting racism, these protests are only perpetuating racism because they keep bringing it up, <laughs> you know? But really... The, the reality there is that it's just making you uncomfortable. <laughs> you don't want people to bring it up because you don't want to have to think about it. Because anyway, I'll get more into it. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say, you know, it even goes so far as, as, you know, sometimes people say that the ones bringing up racial injustice are actually the racist ones themselves because they're the only ones who want to talk about it. And <laughs> so it's like trying to flip it on his head, just anything in order to, avoid the even the possibility that something you said or did was racist you know you know so this idea of colorblindness like I understand where it comes from um it's not like you know people are intentionally trying to be problematic with it you know it comes from a perception of racism as being simple discrimination kind of like you know the discrimination of the past like you know the overt racism of the past but when any race can be discriminated But while any race can be discriminated against, racism is not discrimination because racism only ever goes one way. It's not about discrimination. It's about power, where those at the top of the race hierarchy are given a higher amount of power in society. And those at the bottom of the race hierarchy have less power. And so that means that in a culture that has a hierarchy of power in you know, in it, that racism is always an expression of white supremacy because whites are at the top of the hierarchy. In our today's world where whites are at the top, you know, are given that position, whether we like it or not, reverse racism simply does not exist. It's not a thing because it's not about discrimination. It's about power. There's also such a thing as soft white supremacy, you know, because oftentimes when people hear that term, they think of like skinheads chanting white power, you know, And it's very obvious, but the soft white supremacy is very subtle and it really connects with that idea of white privilege um, because um, which is where that idea of colorblindness really comes from, because white people aren't the ones dealing with racism on a daily basis. They're not the ones suffering from it or we aren't the ones suffering from it as a person that's white. You know, I've never experienced racism in my life (laughs) and Because we're placed at the top of the racial hierarchy, even if we don't want to be, we're placed there, we end up benefiting from this placement in countless subtle ways, you know, whether we choose to or not, you know, like um, we benefit from it in the simple fact that we don't have to experience the oppression of racism. 
Whereas other people who aren't placed at the top of the hierarchy have to experience that. We also benefit from that placement in a lot of other ways that are behind the scenes because of that institutionalized racism. You know, things like uh, we get better uh, mortgage rates, you know, banks treat us differently, you know, and we, we don't, aren't even aware of it most of the time, you know. But when you're a black person and, you know, you're having, you know, consistently, you know, having, um, you know, refinancing denied or, or you're not able to get a mortgage because you want to buy a house in a certain white neighborhood, it becomes a lot more obvious. So regardless of people's intentions, the reality is that wanting everyone to ignore racism and pretend like it doesn't exist, that that only allows racism to continue to exist because it's already happening, like regardless of whether you want it to or not. And it's not going to go away just because you ignore it. You know, white people already ignore it. We, we already aren't aware of it most of the time and it's still there. <laughs> so, you know, I really just want to put a point on that, that because the reason why that is all that has to happen to maintain white supremacy is for things to not change and to stay the same as we are, as they are now, because we already live in a society that elevates whiteness above other colors, even you know, though it doesn't seem like it, it's still very much the case behind the scenes. And so in a reality where race does matter and institutional racism is in fact a thing, claiming that we should be colorblind and not care about race is basically saying that there's nothing wrong with the current racist status quo. So therefore it's racist. Like it or not, you know? You know, that attempt to be colorblind and, and if you deny institutionalized institution god that word is hard institutionalized racism and if you claim that all lives matter that means supporting a status quo that gives white people more power and a higher status in many aspects of society so that's just an unfortunate fact that that ends up supporting white supremacy even when people don't mean it to it's also an expression of soft white supremacy to ignore the voices of people of color when they try to say hey, you saying all lives matter, that's disrespectful or that's racist and here's why. And if some, so if somebody's response to that is, well, let's just choose to agree to disagree or, well, my voice matters too, then what that means is that they're choosing not to listen to the voices of people of color. And that is an expression of soft white supremacy because intentionally or unintentionally or not, you're saying that only your white voice matters, at least to you. And in a racist world that oppresses people for the color of their skin, refusing to listen to the voices of those people who are being oppressed is a way of perpetuating that oppression. And because they already aren't given space to express that in our society in many ways. So what all this means is that being an anti-racist person or being someone who is consciously choosing to address address racism in themselves and in the world around them is the only way to not be a white supremacist. It really is an either-or proposition here. And that isn't simply because I'm just declaring that so or because I'm just seeing things in black and white, but because of the fact that every person growing up in a racist society has been programmed to be racist because we're all programmed by our culture. That just happens when we're children. It's it's like you cannot live in any society of people whatsoever without being programmed by that society with, you know, certain beliefs and ways of looking at things. 
That's called enculturation. And all of us are programmed by the culture that we had the fortune or misfortune to be born into, whether we like it or not. So if we're born into a racist culture, then we get programmed to be racist. And that's not our fault. But it does mean that not being racist requires actual effort. It requires conscious effort to deprogram that belief system and to undo that cultural programming. So that's why I say that the only way to not be a white supremacist unconsciously is to be a conscious anti-racist person. And when I say that all of us are programmed by the culture, I really do mean everybody. Like people of color are also taught to think in racist ways, ways towards themselves and other people of color. They don't think racism towards white people. They often have a lot of anger towards white people. But um, but they're, you know, because racism only goes in one direction down the power hierarchy. What that means is that, you know, a, even though a lot of people of color reject that programming, a lot of them do end up going along with it for their own safety and survival. You know, and they end up, you, you see people like Candace Owens, a great example, you know, someone who says overtly racist things, even though she's black. Um, and that's similar to how abused partners will often side with their abuser, you know, because and, and, and even not want to leave them because there's this, um, you know, survival, this learned sense of safety in going along with the abuser. It's a coping strategy. It's also called Stockholm Syndrome. And the reason why people do that in response to trauma is because there is real danger in going against the ones in power. And there is real danger for, you know, people of color to resist that, you know, the culture in, in that way. It's just a lot safer, you know, to accept those beliefs as true rather than challenging them about, you know, the beliefs that they're inferior. And so this need to dismantle the racism that we've internalized from society is really universal. And it applies to everyone that grows up in this culture. Like, regardless of where we were placed arbitrarily <laughs> because of the color of our skin on on that hierarchy of power and privilege. I would also like to kind of go back to that point about not listening to the voices of people of color, because I think it's important. And it's something that happens a lot, you know, in interactions and social media and stuff. Because if you care about your impact on other people, then when people of color tell you that you're doing something racist, if you want to be anti-racist and you want to not perpetuate white supremacy, then you need to listen, right? That means listening when people of color s speak, even if it's even if they're angry, you know, even if they're rude, you know, just ignore the rudeness and hear the point, you know, that X, Y, and Z is a problem and that you should change that because that's part of the process of deprogramming our belief system. Those at the top of the power hierarchy, we're not going to be able to see what we and, and it, you know, what we need to deprogram is not going to be obvious to us. And so we really need that reflection from the people at the bottom in order to truly do that work. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. It does activate shame. And, you know, that shame leads us to act with humility instead of arrogance. And so embrace the shame as long as the shame as long as you know it's not your shame isn't telling you that you are a worthless human being you know if it's just say if it's just telling you that you made a mistake you know embrace that and be humble it's hard but it's really important it's a key part of this work 
and we need to listen because we simply haven't lived the lives that people of color have. So we don't know what it's like. And because of this unavoidable and inevitable ignorance, most white people tend to assume that their own experience as a white person is the experience of everyone. And it's not really our fault as white people to do this because Hollywood, you know, every, you know, books, media, it all presents a white perspective. And, you know, that's all we see. And that's even what people of color see everywhere, you know. And so it's 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 natural to make that assumption that that's just is the the American experience when it's actually the American white person experience. <laughs> but it's important. So it's, it's like we kind of have to consciously remind ourselves that not everyone has lived the same kind of life that we have. And that when we don't know how other people's life experiences have been shaped by the institutionalized racism of our culture. It's really easy to deny that that racism exists when we aren't experiencing it. That's what it comes down to. And it, it's also natural to value our own opinions the most, of course, because they're ours. We, you know, we're the center of our own universe um, in our perception. But to say that you're wrong and I don't care what you think that's and therefore now I'm going to ignore you because I don't like what you're saying. That's fundamentally selfish, really. And it's a way of dismissing other people's views. And so if you go through life thinking that you can just do and say whatever you want and that you don't have to be responsible for your impact on other people, which unfortunately, as we've seen, is an idea that really gets promoted in New Age circles a lot, that fundamentally goes against that spiritual idea that everything is connected and that we're all part of a greater oneness. So if we believe, if we truly believe that we are all one, then if my words or actions hurt you, you know, as a person of color, if I said something as a white person that was just ignorant and, you know, I shouldn't have said, or you know what I mean? Like that, that was hurtful to you in a way that I didn't know was going to happen then I'm hurting myself too. If I hurt you, I'm hurting myself too. So I should care about your feelings and your well-being for the good of everyone and everything. And I feel like that really gets to the heart of the matter here, which is that any idea of supremacy is fundamentally incompatible with the spiritual belief that everything is interconnected and that everything is one. Because the idea of oneness means that we are all divine and every part of the whole matters equally because it's all divine. So if you are being made to be subordinate to me or and I'm being elevated above you, then even though I'm being elevated above you, I'm actually being being made subordinate too because we're all connected. Like it harms me too. So you can't put anything into a hierarchy and also believe that we are all one. And that goes into a lot of other spiritual beliefs, honestly, like valencing emotions into positive and negative and with the different vibrational scale and all this stuff, which I'm going to talk about in future episodes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to skip ahead here because I feel like I'm, I wrote down the same point like in 20,000 ways. <laughs> all right. I, I just want to say, if a person claims to be all about love and compassion or a being of love and light and they choose not to listen to the voices of people of color... You know, if they if they just, you know, ignore the Black Lives Matter protests as just being a bunch of people, you know, who just want to like smash windows and they refuse to listen, then what these people are actually saying is, yeah, I'm a being of love and light for other white people, but not for you. 
They're saying, I have compassion for other white people who are like me, but not for you. And like it or not, that's racist. I'd like to also mention about fascism, the, the need to deprogram the fascist in our heads, because there there's a certain amount of propensity towards fascism that has gotten embedded in us just in the process of enculturation in this culture, because we do live in a very authoritarian culture, you know, even though it's, you know, America and it's all about freedom. It's like, yeah, we really... We're not as free as we think we are. And there's a lot of fascist undertones in our culture already. And so, you know, if we don't want to be slide towards fascism, then we kind of got to be aware of that. So um, a quote from Michael Foucault, Foucault, I honestly don't know how to pronounce his name. It's one of those things that I, I know how to spell it, but I can't pronounce it. He said, The strategic adversary is fascism, the fascism in us all, in our heads and in our everyday behavior, the fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. And this fascism in our heads is an internal desire to be ruled. It's an obedience to authority that many studies have shown to be a psychological characteristic of people who identify politically as right wing. And it makes sense because fascism is a right-wing phenomenon. It's kind of a far-right phenomenon. But yeah, we see this in the far-right political sphere quite a bit, particularly those who believe in QAnon, who often call for Trump to use the military and talk about him as a benevolent dictator. Um, You know, they want, want, you know, the, what do you call it, the white hats to just kind of, you know, impose themselves on us. And they want a strongman. That's why they like Trump. Um, We also see this in support for authoritarian policies like the death penalty, military tribunals, criminalizing drugs, a lot of just crime and punishment in general. It's just very authoritarian. It all is, really. I don't know why I'm saying a lot. It all is. And so all these like crime and punishment model kind of law and order policies and politics is really uh, quite... uh, fascistic because it's so authoritarian it's also um christian right stuff like criminalizing same-sex marriage and restricting abortion rights because it's it it goes it's not just saying i think those are things are wrong like morally wrong it's saying i want to take away your right to choose that for yourself i want to force my beliefs on you which is very much like a domination thing And yet, the same people who support a lot of these authoritarian policies are also the ones who scream the loudest about freedom. And so why is that? Like, where does this internal desire to be ruled come from? And I can't help but wonder how much it comes from people with unresolved childhood wounds who have never really grown up in an archetypal sense, but who are instead embodying the wounded child. And that makes sense if you think about, well, if you want a dictatorial father figure to rule society and make everything better for you and make you feel safe with all these law and order stuff, you know, throwing all the criminals in jail, that kind of sounds like you, you're still stuck on having this this being fathered in a way that you didn't get as a child. Um, and also if a person wants a freedom to do whatever they want to do, but then they're positively gleeful about restricting rights and freedoms for other people who they don't care about or they don't like, like immigrants or gay people, 
it, it's like that internal contradiction makes sense if it's just coming from that very emotional place of the wounded child. And that really gets back to why we so desperately need to consciously initiate our young people into adulthood. Because only when someone has truly archetypally grown up in the world, like in themselves, are they able to accept that the world is not inherently safe and that they need to parent themselves, you know, they need to be willing to lead their own lives instead of looking for leadership and safety from other people. And only when someone is truly an adult can they even desire freedom for everyone while also accepting the responsibility that comes with that freedom. And it, it's understanding that with freedom comes great, comes great responsibility, kind of like with power comes great responsibility. It's the same thing. If you're going to step into your power, you need to become responsible. So that's really, I feel like, what being an adult means. It's like stepping into our power and being willing to wield our power in the world and, and share that wielding with other people, with other adults, you know, co-creating the society we live in, rather than wanting to hand over power to an external force that can make us feel safe. And so at this point in history, there are two sides vying for control. They're not like two groups of people, necessarily, but they're two distinct ways of thinking, two very different set of values and approaches to the problems that we all collectively face. And it's important to be aware of which side has our allegiance. And so in order to discern that, um, I would suggest that you ask yourself these questions. Like, is your primary concern for yourself or is your primary concern for other people? Like, and is this more than just a perception of yourself, just like a knee-jerk reaction? Oh, of course, you know, I'm, I'm all about, you know, I want to help other people. But is that actually backed up by the real actions you take in the world? Like, do you act in that way where you have that care for others? And do you believe that society should take care of people who are struggling and need help? Or do you see governmental help for such people as a personal threat to your well-being, to your own, you know, um, finances or well-being? And how willing are you to sacrifice a little of what you have in order to help out someone else in need? How comfortable are you with paradox and complexity when faced with the seemingly overwhelming problems of the world? Do you desire the comfort of simple problems and simple solutions, or would you rather accept that problems can't easily be solved if that is, in fact, the truth? And finally, the big question here, do you prefer to see the world through the lens of villains and heroes so you can feel like a hero? Or are you willing to accept the burden of personal responsibility that comes from knowing that you are also complicit in the world's problems? And that while other humans may be misguided, they aren't truly our enemies. Also, there's an, another important question, I believe. Do you believe in good versus evil? Or do you believe that all humans and all beings are equally divine, all equally good, but just sometimes make bad choices? Do you see two sides in a war of light versus dark? Or do you believe that we're all in this together? You know, these two mindsets, like... Unfortunately, we can choose only one because these two mindsets are diametrically opposed to each other. It's the mindset of self-centeredness or the mindset of empathy, the mindset of individualism or the mindset of interconnectedness. It's a mindset of simplicity or complexity and the mindset of separation 
or the understanding that underneath diversity and differences of opinion, we're all fundamentally human and we're all equal. And yes, I'm presenting two sides here. And so that seems very black and white. And I've thought about this, believe me. But these sides are not, you know, they're not like me versus you. It's two different ways of thinking. And so thinking that one mindset is the better way forward for humanity isn't the same as believing that my side or my people are good while the other side is evil. It's just thinking that one mindset is the only is going to lead to the kind of world we want to live in. <laughs> Whereas the other mindset's kind of problematic if we want to live in a world, you know, where everyone is cared for and a world that's based on love. And so it's entirely possible to step out of the antagonistic mindset of us versus them while still recognizing that there are two diff very different ways of seeing the world. And that these two paradigms are kind of battling it out for space in your mind and heart. You know, it's, it's not good versus evil, but there is a clash of paradigms happening. Because the only way to plug in to the new paradigm that is emerging, that is not, you know, rooted in, in this culture, is to unplug from the old. Um, the only, like, the oldest belief wins. You know, if you can hold two conflicting beliefs, but the oldest belief the most one that's most core to our psyche will win out when it comes to what action we're actually going to take in the world. And I feel like that's exactly what happens with a lot of spiritual people where they have heard these spiritual ideas and they agree with them. They feel the truth of them, but they haven't really stepped out of the old paradigm and the other beliefs. And they're still carrying those other beliefs around so that when it comes to their actual way they act in the world, they don't act from that spiritual place. They don't live the beliefs that they claim to espouse. Also, you know, in, in looking at the psychology of politics and political beliefs, there have been studies of the brains of people who identify with different views, and they found that when shown the same images, in conservatives, the amygdala was more active, which is the part of the brain focused on fear and personal survival, while among liberals, when shown those same images, like, say, a, a person from a culture that you've never seen before, that, you know, the frontal lobe connected with reasoning and empathy was more active. So this kind of gets back to what I was saying at the beginning, and I probably should have said this then. But the, uh, the researchers who noticed this said that the difference was so striking that they almost looked like two different types of humans. But in truth, we aren't fundamentally different in any way. We have the capacity to see things in both ways. We just are focusing on different things. Some people are choosing to see things a certain way, and some people are choosing to see things another way. And our patterns of neurology can change really quickly, like even from moment to moment, like in a fraction of a second. So the difference in conservative and progressive attitudes doesn't say anything about who people are fundamentally or what type of person is superior to the other. But it does show that or how the values and beliefs that we choose to hold, how that dictates which part of the brain is more active in any given situation. So I think we need to be clear about what we believe in and what we value because that influences everything about how we see the world and how we act in the world. Like it literally... Um, determines which parts of our brain will light up when we see a, a dirty homeless person on, on in the street, you know? And all of that, all of, you know, what we believe in and what we value is ultimately a choice. 
you know, while that choice is heavily influenced by cultural programming and it's influenced by our own unhealed wounds from childhood and maybe even beyond, it's still a choice because we can choose to heal and we can choose to reprogram our belief system and we can choose to see things differently if we want to. And so ultimately, we can choose to do what it takes to truly grow up. And just to conclude this very long episode, I would like to uh, share a message from the fairies that I was given. And uh, when I was writing this up and thinking about this episode, and I connected with the fairy realm and got this message. They said, this episode is important, but not for the reasons that I think. Humanity is on a dangerous course, a dangerous path. You are looking to the wrong people for leadership. Handing away your power to these people is dangerous, not just for you humans, but for the entire planet. And why? What is it for? To make the, your wounded child parts of you feel safe? This is foolishness. Remember what it truly means to be human. Remember your responsibility to all of life. Grow up. Step up to the task that you are given by being here on this earth. If you do not, you will perish by your own hand. If you do not heal your wounds, you will visit those same wounds upon others. This is not the way. Pretending to be beings of light does nothing to heal those wounds. It does nothing to stop you from acting out those wounds. This is not the way. Growing up means taking responsibility for yourself. And that means doing the work of healing, noticing your impact, and putting the needs of the collective ahead of your own. Although in truth, they do not conflict. Only the needs of the wounded child conflicts with the needs of the greater whole. The only way forward is to meet those needs of the wounded child within yourself for yourself. Do not expect others to do this for you. Do not look to others to do this for you. Stop looking for mother and father to save you and protect you out in the world. You are no longer children, so stop acting like it. <laughs> so you can hear my own words in that because I'm translating it, you know, the, the, what I was feeling and perceiving. They're telling me it's coming through in my own language. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like um, I feel like that really was just summing up why this is so important. And so that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel moved by it in any way, please consider supporting this podcast in whatever way feels right to you. You can share it with your friends and family. You can leave a good review on iTunes, or you can shoot me an email with your feedback and ideas for future shows. I also am still struggling to get the sound quality right. So if you want to help me out with that, please do. I'll totally welcome suggestions about that. And all of that engagement helps to make this podcast thrive and become even more rich. And so you can follow me on Twitter at Saturn Speaks Pod. And for everything else is SaturnSpeaksPod.com. Uh, next episode, I will be talking about the connection between dissociation and transcendence and how easy it is to use spirituality as a form of escapism and how prevalent that is. So I feel like that's really important to bring up. So um, until next week. Everyone, stay awake, aware, and spiritually grounded.